This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 127, More Bears. I'm Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. I've never done a sequel before, but the Bears episode was well-received, and I still have Daniel Boone on the brain from last week, so I decided to revisit one of my favorite mammals. We will discuss whether children should take on big game, how Boone's name got on all those trees, the story of the giant man-eater that wouldn't die, either the story or the bear, and how meeting a bear can change your daily routine. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Bears are not especially common in the Bible. The first time they appear, in fact, is in a story that David tells in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 and following read as follows. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Lions, on the other hand, are quite common in the Bible. The lions episode is going to have to wait, though. The killing of a bear, though, by what is, according to every second grade curriculum anyway, a child, seems somewhat unrealistic, and I think deservedly so. I see no reason to believe that David killed a lion and a bear when he was 8 or 10 or 12 David, by the time he gets to this point in the story, in 1 Samuel 17, he's a grown enough man for Saul to offer him his armor, and Saul is the largest man in the country. So David has to be physically full-grown, at least, or pretty close to it. We're talking about an older teenager, or perhaps even older than that. Shepherding gave David a chance to honor his father, his father who placed him out in the field. Remember the anointing story back in chapter 16, when Samuel went to Bethlehem and found the house of Jesse. David is trusted with the sheep out in the field while the older brothers meet with the great man. I don't doubt that that was pretty typical. David seems to have been quite adept at this sort of thing, and according to the story that he tells Saul, it was not unusual for him to be out with the sheep. His father trusted him with his family's wealth. He believed that David was capable of taking care of this and honoring his father, and especially in this context, honoring his heavenly father, was a big part of how he was able to take on this enormous task, a seemingly unwinnable task, and do it with confidence and assurance, knowing that his father and his heavenly father trusted in him to get the job done. He was able to kill the lion, he was able to kill the bear, and eventually, of course, as we know the story here in chapter 17, he was able to kill the Philistine. David took his job of shepherding very seriously. That's pretty obvious from the context. Others did not. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 34, the shepherds of Israel, the shepherds of God's people, their leadership are accused of not taking these things seriously, of using their position to fleece the flock, pardon the expression, and take care of themselves instead. Verse number one, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. With force and with severity, you have dominated them. 
They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, lions and bears, that is, and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains, and on every high hill my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Well, there was no one who was willing to anyway. Certain ones had that responsibility. They did not accept that responsibility because ultimately they didn't care about the sheep. That's one of the beautiful things about Psalm 78, as the history of Israel is recounted, and it gets to the point where David is appointed not as king, according to the text, but as shepherd of the flock, because he cared about the flock, because he built them up. He genuinely wanted the people to be successful. He believed that God was going to accomplish these great things, including in the time of lions and bears. We see in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you. O Lord, my strength, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Again, including the lion, including the bear, David has confidence that if he will entrust himself to his father, if he will entrust himself to the job that has been given to him, he will find success. And what a blessing it is for us as the people of God to look to the one that David prefigures, to look to the son of David, as he's sometimes called, to Jesus Christ himself, and see that all of these things, honoring his father, shepherding the flock, and taking his responsibility seriously, being the good shepherd, as John chapter 10 tells us, genuinely caring about us, genuinely loving us to the point of giving his life for us, not conceptually, but literally dying for the sheep living every moment in this life, trusting that God's way is best. We have that kind of shepherd ourselves. And what a blessing it is to us when we encounter bears on the way, when there is a Philistine giant in front of us. We can rest assured that even if we are incapable, our Savior is not, our shepherd is not. We are in good hands with him. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. The name Daniel Boone, oftentimes in conjunction with the word bear, is carved into trees all over the United States, from Pennsylvania to California, including in places where clearly Daniel Boone never went. The most famous of these inscriptions, the fake ones that is, is in Tennessee, It reads, D. Boone killed a bear in the year 1760. It's dated to the 1770s. It is an indication that in very, very early days, people knew who Daniel Boone was. They knew how important he was and his work was. And even that they were willing and eager to steal credit for things that Daniel Boone did. That's a story that has persisted for the last 250 years. How do you know that this is a fake? Well, there are a variety of reasons. For one, Daniel Boone was not as illiterate as a lot of people let on. And this particular inscription, the word bear is misspelled, the word killed is misspelled, the name Boone is misspelled. And John MacFarger, the writer of the Daniel Boone biography to which I referred last week, he is convinced and he makes a good case that a lot of these inscriptions were deliberately dumbed down because surely somebody like Daniel Boone didn't know how to spell things. And in all fairness, spelling was pretty strange back in those days before Noah Webster said, hey, if we spelled everything correctly and the same way, wouldn't that be a wonderful kind of thing? The spelling episode, yet another preview of coming attractions. But anyway, Daniel Boone knew how to spell his own name. At the very least, he knew that. So 
if you see B-O-O-N carved in a tree someplace, it's a pretty good indication that someone was pretending to be Daniel Boone. Saying things or writing things, or in this case, carving things that are not true, it's a big deal. Who's really going to be harmed? I would argue that the cause of truth is harmed and that we need to respect truth in concept. And there's never a good opportunity to tell a lie. There's never a good opportunity to say something that is not true, particularly when we're talking about stories that belong to other people. Stolen honor is theft. Stolen honor is a phrase that has come to refer more specifically to people in the military who take credit for great deeds that are done by other people. It's ego, it's jealousy, and it's wrong. It's sinful. One of the first examples of stolen honor in the Bible is with regard to Moses and his own brother and sister. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we read that Miriam and Moses spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. At least that is the, the impetus for all of this. It doesn't seem to be central to the issue, though. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Here's the real issue. Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When he had them both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why were you then not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? The reason Aaron and Miriam wanted more power is because they were jealous over the attention, the credit, the whatever that Moses was receiving. We may claim that being part of the story like this, after all, Daniel Boone's been dead for hundreds of years at this point, what harm could possibly come? The thing is that when we are honoring people, quote unquote, honoring people in this way, what we're really doing more often than not is simply glorifying ourselves. It's selfishness in disguise. The things that we do are not supposed to be public things. And making other people's deeds public for our own gratification, for our own fame and fortune, that's not doing anybody any good. Jesus teaches us a very much the opposite approach to fame in the Sermon on the Mount, the first few verses of Matthew chapter 6 especially. The idea of doing your deeds to be seen of men, drawing attention to yourself so that you will have more attention. That's the, really the whole point, isn't it? We want the credit. We want the attention. And if giving somebody else glory does it for us, that's what we're willing to do. That's not the same thing as service by any stretch. That is not giving honor to somebody else. That's a sideways way of acquiring honor for ourselves. And I caution you with regard to these so-called harmless lies that don't seem on the surface to have any downside. Lying is addictive. Disregarding the truth is addictive. Maybe that's why all liars are mentioned in Revelation 21, verse 8. Not all murderers or all thieves or whatever. All liars, he says there, are going to have their place in the lake of fire. And realize also that when we embellish the truth like this, when we make things bigger than they were or smaller than they were or whatever, when we change things to fit the modern narrative, there is an attitude toward truth that is affected. I think we would all agree that when fake news dominates the headlines, when we become less and less inclined to believe what we hear, it makes it more and more difficult to find what actually is the truth. That's why 
Jesus tells us to just let our yes be yes and our no, no in Matthew 5, verse 37. We should just content ourselves with simply telling the truth about us, about others, about Daniel Boone, about our history, about whatever. Simply stand for what is right and content ourselves with that. It may result in a less interesting read. It may result in fewer stories to tell around the campfire. But truth is worth the extra effort. Let's do what we can to preserve it. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. The story began in 2001 when a U.S. airman shot and killed a large grizzly bear, or as they're sometimes called, a coastal brown bear. I say large, uh, remarkably large, not unprecedented, not monstrous, but large. Reports got in the newspaper about this, and they took some photographs, some photographs with some creative camera lens work, and made the bear look a little bit bigger than it actually was. Well, that's not especially surprising. There's all kinds of trick photography that's used to create all kinds of effects. Well, the story got told, and it got retold, and it got retold, and the pictures got taken out of context. And before too long, the bear wasn't 10 and a half feet long anymore. It was 12 and a half feet long. It was 13 feet long. It was 14 feet long. It was a monster, a gigantic bear that could, on its hind legs, see into your second story window. And as if that were not enough, it became a man-eater. The story went that the bear was cut open, and inside they found five bullets from a gun other than the one that had killed the bear. And they found the gun that had fired the bullets. And they found the man who had fired the gun. Well, that's all fiction. None of that happened. There are such things as man-eating bears. Bears will eat virtually anything, and if they stumble across a human being, especially a dead human being, they will go to town on it. It will happen. It has happened. We're not suggesting that it doesn't. We're saying that this particular story had nothing to do with man-eating bears. It had nothing to do with record-setting bears, giant bears, or any such thing as that. This is what happens when we tell stories and we retell stories, and we do not have any kind of particular regard for the truth. And again, like we mentioned in the previous segment, sometimes it doesn't seem like any harm is being done when we embellish a little bit, we exaggerate. It's a better story. Then I'm sorry, I disagree with that in large measure because the Bible says so. In Revelation 22 and verse 15, part of the list of people that are not going to have their place in this eternal kingdom are those who love and practice a lie. Now, we all know people who do that. We all know people who love telling things that aren't true. They aren't necessarily malicious about it. They just find it fun to say things that aren't true. That's one of the reasons why people embellish. That's one of the reasons why people exaggerate. Look at the list of sins that's given to us in Romans chapter 1, describing a completely depraved society, a society that has drifted so far away from God as to have no concept of morality anymore. In verse number 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There are some sins that seem to fit this category very well. Inventors of evil, that sounds like a pretty horrible kind of thing. But envy, strife, how many of us aren't guilty of strife from time to time? 
being insolent, being arrogant, boastful, without understanding. And again, right in the middle of all of this is the idea of deceit. But I would suggest to you also that there is another thing working in with this particular kind of embellishment, this particular kind of exaggeration. There are some people who live in fear. The more terrifying it is, the more likely they are to believe it. The fear of man brings a snare, the text says in Proverbs 29, verse 25. If we live in fear, if we are terrified of what is going to happen next, what somebody's going to do to us next, what a big bear is going to do to us or whatever, it immobilizes us. It keeps us from doing the things that are expected of us for ourselves, for our family, for our culture. Living in fear is not what God wants for us. And whether the object of the fear is a bear or COVID-19 or vaccines or whatever other kind of newsworthy item might be out there these days by the time you listen to this podcast, none of that is a fear that is so great as to be worth taking our eyes off of God, taking our eyes off of truth in general and especially his truth. I love Proverbs 23, verse 23. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Find what is actually true in your life, what is actually true in God's word, and hold on to that. Research your sources. Consider preconceived notions. Consider built-in biases and that sort of thing when you are going to people for truth. Don't just assume that it's true because it comes from the government or it's true because it comes from your favorite news source or it's true because it comes from your mom and dad or because it's the popular opinion, or you saw it on Facebook, do your research, dig in, find what is actually true, and hold on to it like grim death. Especially this is true with spiritual truth. That truth is going to set us free. Dig into the Bible, find out what God is actually wanting you to do with your life, and it's not to live your life cowering over what might come next. Trust in Him. Believe that He is watching over you, that He is preparing you for greater things. And this truth that He provides for you in His Word is going to set you free from all of these lesser kind of fears. John 8, verse 32. You don't have to live this way anymore. There are bad things out there. There are things that are terrifying. Yes, there are real man-eaters in the world. But trust in God. Believe that He is watching over you. Live your life as a Christian and live your life in hope and faith and confidence. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. So I suppose I have accepted that the Old West is my favorite board game theme. Many of my favorite games are rooted in the Old West. My very favorite game is rooted in the Old West. Several of the games I've featured here on the podcast are Old West themes. I'm going to introduce you to another one today, a game called Sierra West. And it's pretty standard stuff. You're a settler, a trailblazer, businessman. You're trying to make your way in California or whatever. It all centers around the actions of these two workers that you have. And the actions that the two workers take depend on cards that you place in particular places. Without getting too bogged down in the details, what you have are cards in your hand that have various symbols. And the way that the cards slip into the board reveal certain actions that the one worker can take and that the other worker can take. And they just go left to right across the path there and do all the things they're told to do. Maybe they are going mining or hunting or what have you. And they get all the way to the end of the path, and that's that's their day, essentially. The way that you play the cards determines what they are able to do. Now, sometimes you run into a mule. And mules are great because mules let you do more work. And if you find a card that has a mule, 
you're going to try to find a way to feature that mule so the mule can empower the worker to do work that is more effective. Sometimes also you find a bear. If the bear appears on the path of either one of these workers, they go left or right like they normally do, and then they find the bear and their day is over. I don't think we're supposed to infer from this that the bear ate the worker because the worker comes back the next round. He keeps working. I think it's more along the lines of, you know what? I think I'm good for the day. I think I'm going to go home. I'm going to get a good night's sleep, eat some dinner, and try this again tomorrow. The bear puts a stop to the work day, as you would expect. I would imagine finding a bear in your path is going to change the way that you conduct your business on any given day. It's not business as usual anymore. We don't plan for it necessarily. In fact, you try to lay your cards out there in the tableau where you don't have the bear at all. Sometimes you can't help it, though. And when that happens, what you need to do is not get off of your game plan too much. I think we would all acknowledge that special circumstances call for special measures. If there is a bear in your path, you're not expected to continue as though business were usual because clearly it's not. I bring this up in a spiritual context, in a church context, in a, frankly, to be blunt about it, a COVID-19 context, because we are given certain unusual circumstances from time to time. Maybe it's a hurricane, maybe it's a pandemic, whatever it happens to be. There are certain ways that we live our lives as Christians. There are certain ways that the Lord's church conducts itself on a normal basis, This is not a suicide pact, and I think we all appreciate that, that we are going to commit ourselves to the Lord and do things the Lord's way. Sometimes business is not usual, and sometimes we need to modify the plan. I think that's largely what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 3, we read, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how they entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. For if you know what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And his use of the word innocent here in this context compels me to think that he is saying with regard to David that it's not a sin to give a hungry man some food. This is not the purpose of this food. In fact, it's specifically designated for a different purpose, a holy purpose. But circumstances sometimes call for extraordinary measures. And we don't want to be cruel people simply to stand on a line of principle. If someone were to have a diabetic fit during the worship at the Lakewoods Dry Church of Christ and needed a shot of grape juice to maintain consciousness, we would give him communion juice, whether he's a member of the church or not, because it's the right thing to do. That's not what it's designed for, but we're human beings. We're decent people. It might even be criminal and certainly immoral for us to not do that kind of thing. Special circumstances call for special measures. And we accept that. But what we don't do is we don't get off course. We don't forget who we are. We don't quit playing the game. We don't go home and never come back again. We don't just assume, well, I guess this is a world with bears in it now. And so I guess what we ought to do is just quit doing all these good things and start doing these other kind of things. What we do is we find new routes. We find new paths to accomplish God's purposes. Many of the things that we're forced to give up are not necessarily things that are required of us. There are simply ways that we have learned to carry out the things that are required of us. There may be a different way. So we find that other way. We find a different path to accomplish God's purposes in the long term and, when possible, in the short term. I'm 
reminded of Acts chapter 16 and verse 6 and following when Paul has a plan to go preach the gospel in certain areas and the Holy Spirit keeps telling him no. He keeps telling him no, we're going to do something else. Verse 6 reads, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they got to Mycenae, they were trying to go in Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas, and eventually they're in Troas, they get the Macedonian call, and they go into Europe, to Philippi and other cities on the other side of the Strait of Dardanelles. And they were able to accomplish great things in that way. It's not that They weren't able to work for God. They simply were not able to work for God in the way that they had expected, the way that they had planned, the way they might have preferred. They didn't stop working. And that's a critically important point for us as the people of God. If you are not able for whatever reason, and I don't care to get into a specific discussion here about what makes you able or not able to gather with the Lord's saints on the Lord's Day, for instance, if you are in a position where, in your judgment, You're not able to do God's work. You're not able to assemble with the saints. Do something else. Find a way to connect with brethren. Find a way to connect with God's word. Don't take time off from your service simply because your ordinary path has been disrupted. You find a different path. We don't surrender the ground that we have made in our efforts simply because our preferred path has been disrupted. We do God's work. And if the best way for us to do God's work is temporarily blocked, we find a way to get back to that best way as quickly as we possibly can. We don't surrender ground permanently. We commit ourselves to the things of God always, and every single day we do the best we can at accomplishing His will. It may be different. It may seem, at least on the surface, to be less than it had been in times past, but we never stop being the people of God. We don't let the bear in the road stop us from pursuing Jesus, from pursuing the things of Jesus. It's a scary world out there. A lot of things are trying to block us from our destiny, trying to block us from our path to glory. And it may seem on the surface in the short term that it's working. It doesn't have to work, and it will not work in the long term. It will not work in the big picture, not if we don't allow it to work. If we trust in the Lord, if we trust in Jesus, if we give ourselves to him, if we do not grow weary in well-doing, we can and we will get to the place God is trying to get us to go. We will be successful in our walk with Christ. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.